You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. The official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Erin Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the world of intelligence and espionage. It's past, it's present, or it's future. Coming up next on SpyCast. And so I would come home from school and read the newspaper. And I was paging through the newspaper and I saw an article you know, about the assassination and, oh, you know, look, it says here that there was a black police officer who was a mole in this militant group called the Invaders. And then I see my father's name. Lita Mikola-Seletsky is this week's SpyCast guest. She came on the show to share the story of her father, the famous kneeling man, who was seen down by the side of Martin Luther King Jr., who was struck down by an assassin's bullet at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, on April 4th, 1968. Meryl Mack McCullough was attempting to stem the flow of blood from Dr. King's wound with a borrowed towel. Lita grew up fully aware that her father was the man in the photograph beside the civil rights leader and Nobel Prize laureate. What she didn't find out until many years later was that her father was actually an undercover spy working with the Memphis Police Department. Lita is a former litigator who went on to become a national endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellow. In this episode, Andrew and Lita discuss the life and times of Meryl Mac McCullough, the CIA connection between father and daughter, Black Power and the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO, and coming to terms with the past and the present. You can support our podcast for free by subscribing to the show or giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The official podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, well, it's a, it's a real pleasure to speak to you and your, your, the story that you have in your book, uh, The Kneeling Man, is a really, really powerful and fascinating story. So I've read the book. I feel like I understand it, but I feel like you understand it much better than me because you wrote it. So could you just tell us very briefly what your book is about? Yes. Um, the ne- well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. Um, but yes, The Kneeling Man is the story behind the man who is 
uh, kneeling over a fatally wounded Dr. King in the famous photograph uh, taken in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. And so a lot of people don't really notice this kneeling man unless, you know, one is familiar with some of the conspiracy theories around the assassination. But this book tells the story of why he is there on that balcony, what brought him to the Lorraine Motel on April 4th, 1968, um, what he saw and experienced, and um, what the aftermath of uh, being at the scene of the assassination was for him and how that aftermath unfolded, not only in his life, but in the lives of his loved ones. And there's a twist to this story because you have a connection to the kneeling man, don't you? Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, I should probably mention that this kneeling man (laughs) is my father. And let's just open the story up a bit. So we've got the kneeling man in the photograph. He's your father. What, why is he there? Uh, how is he there? Just tell our listeners a little bit more about how your father found himself there. Yes. Um, so my father, um, it, you know, the people on the scene of, at the assassination believed that he was a member of a black militant group called the Invaders. And uh, in fact, people thought he was their minister of transportation, Morell. But what they didn't know was that he, in fact, was a mole in this group from the Memphis Police Department. He was a commissioned police um, officer who was working undercover to infiltrate this uh, black militant group. And it was through his um, work infiltrating this group, actually carrying out his duties as Minister of Transportation, driving people, that um, happened to bring him to the Lorraine Motel shortly before Dr. King was shot. And do you know how much how much of that was happenstance and how much of it was was planned? Like, so the group that your father was a part of, the Invaders, they are going to have talks with Dr. Martin Luther King. Did your father go undercover with the Invaders because that would give him proximity to Martin Luther King, or is it a completely separate thing? It's a completely separate thing. I've gotten that question before, but his work infiltrating this group was actually something that arose out of the Memphis Police Department's concerns. And, you know, I I believe, you know, one could infer probably the FBI's concerns as well, that this militant group was um, potentially seeking to cause civil unrest in Memphis during the historic sanitation strike, which uh, began in February, you know, just a couple months before Dr. King was killed. And actually, it was the sanitation strike that brought Dr. King to Memphis. And so there was a concern in law enforcement that the invaders might seek to radicalize the strikers and their supporters. And for that reason, the um, folks in Memphis's uh, police departments, uh, uh, what was it, the Intelligence Bureau, asked if my father would be willing to get to know these folks in this group and listen and report back on what they were planning to do. It's quite fascinating because he's he's there because the the uh, invaders are a, a Memphis-based group and he's asked to go undercover with them. So it is complete coincidence that Dr. Martin Luther King turns up to get involved in the sanitation worker strike, which that's the reason why he's at the Lorraine Hotel, right? Yes, that's right. And so 
really, you know, to understand the context, you know, you've got to understand that the sanitation strike, this was something that was unprecedented in Memphis history, that you would have, you know, a group of black workers who worked for the city. And I mean, these are essentially the least of these in Memphis who decide that they're no longer going to take their poor working conditions their uh, you know, poverty wages and um, just the dehumanizing treatment that they're getting, they're not going to take it anymore. And they just essentially walk off the job. They don't even take a vote. And they want to unionize. They want a union dues checkoff. They want better treatment and they want better pay. And so, you know, going on strike, they end up going head to head with the city. And in particular, the mayor of the city, Henry Loeb, who is adamant that he's not going to negotiate with them. He is extremely patronizing to them. I mean, this is a segregationist mayor, and he does not respect them. Um, and so he will not give one inch. And so things just kind of stall in the city. And um, they reach this point where, you know, the garbage isn't getting picked up. The city's trying to hire scabs. You know, um, the mayor won't budge. The workers won't budge. But the, the strikers can't seem to get national eyes on their cause, which will give them the leverage to bring something to the bargaining table to tell the mayor, look, you have to negotiate with us. You have to respect us until Dr. King enters the picture. There is a group of ministers in the city who organized this group called Community on the Move for Equality. And it's through these ministers that, um, in fact, it was James Lawson, who, um, you know, is, of course, a uh, lion of the civil rights movement who innovated, um, you know, during the sit-ins in Nashville and kind of brought uh, this uh, nonviolent action method um, into popular usage. He is a key member of this community on the move for equality. And so he also happens to be friends with Dr. King. And through his invitation, Dr. King comes to Memphis to lend his support to the striking sanitation workers. Um, and in fact, their cause is something that dovetails very nicely with a cause that he is promoting. Dr. King is promoting his Poor People's Campaign, which is taking on the economic exploitation of marginalized people. And so Dr. King comes to Memphis, and with Dr. King, of course, comes national attention and comes leverage on behalf of the striking sanitation workers. And so that is why you have Dr. King in Memphis at the same time that you have, you know, these um, other actors, other social activists, including uh, the invaders and my father's infiltration in this group happening at the same time. And you're actually from Memphis, aren't you, Lita, originally? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would be quite interesting, you know, could you just place... Memphis and Tennessee within the context of the civil rights movement. So some people have heard of the, you know, Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama or the school in Little Rock uh, er, a, a little bit earlier or North Carolina and, and the counters and so forth. But just just briefly, just place Memphis and Tennessee within the context of this broader civil rights uh, struggle that's taken place at this period. Right. And all of these cities that you named, all these places, you know, are well known in the civil rights movement for the various things that happen. You know, North Carolina, you know, the sit-ins, Nashville, of course, the Montgomery uh, 
uh, bus boycott, you know, Birmingham, uh, places like that. Whereas Memphis uh, was not necessarily what you would consider like, you know, a marquee sort of place for these kinds of actions. I mean, certainly there were um, plenty of things that happened in Memphis, you know, along these lines, you know, uh, Memphis had sit-ins. In fact, one of the first civil rights actions during this time where people were arrested in Memphis was at a library where people, you know, uh, black people were not allowed to use um, all of the library facilities. And so folks came in, young people uh, in particular, and uh, sat in and got arrested as a result. And so Memphis was far quieter, I would say, compared to some of these other, you know, places that are well known, at least uh, in terms of kind of the nationally known historic civil rights events. And that's part of what made the sanitation strike so kind of surprising and unprecedented. It's because Memphis was kind of seen as, you know, this town where everybody kind of gets along and, you know, our our folks are happy. You know, it was, it was seen as kind of, you know, a sleepier place, but a place where you didn't have these big clashes that you would have seen in other cities. And so when the sanitation uh, workers finally said enough and we're not going to take this anymore, this was really kind of the first big event that, I mean, you could say, really, it was the crossroads of, you know, a labor action and a civil rights action. Please correct me uh, if I'm wrong, which I probably am, but uh, if I remember reading about the history of the civil rights movement, the the sanitation workers, sanitation workers strike, uh, this comes at a period when uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement more generally, there's, there's um, you know, activism because of the Vietnam War and so forth. But this is a moment when Dr. King is really focusing on socioeconomic rights. You know, the, the we, we need to start here on the home front. You know, there's people that are dying overseas for a country and when they come back to the country, they don't have an equal footing and in society. So could, could you just briefly place the sanitation worker strike in the context of, of the broader civil rights movement? Like where, where are we in the trajectory of the civil rights movement when the sanitation worker strike happens? Right. So, you know, we are in February 1968. And so at this point, we've gone, you know, Far beyond, you know, in some ways far beyond, in some ways maybe not so far beyond, but, you know, Brown v. Board, we've gone beyond the sit-ins, you know, now desegregation in law, if not in practice, really, um, you know, has won the day. And so things are, you know, opening up in that way. Voting rights, you know, there's been legislation on that. Uh, Dr. King uh, is is facing some headwinds because, you know, now with the Vietnam War, as you mentioned, you know, he has taken a stand against the Vietnam War, which um, he takes a lot of heat for, including, you know, folks who normally were with Dr. King. You know, it's a very controversial stance. Dr. King also has um, really expanded his message. I mean, he always, you know, has had this message of, you know, equity in, in all sort of, sort of, you know, layers of life, you know, including economics and so forth. But he has now been very vocal about, um, you know, economic justice 
as well as um, he's taken on this anti-war, anti-militarism stance. In fact, um, it was one year to the day before he was assassinated. So this would have been April 4th, 1967, that he gave a very famous speech in uh, New York City at Riverside uh, Church where, you know, he condemns the United States for its actions in Vietnam, you know, and, you know, he, he is decrying the militarism of this country. And then, you know, of course, he is trying to um, introduce a poor people's campaign. He has envisioned a mule train of people that he's going to lead from Marks, Mississippi, to Washington, D.C., where they're going to you know, set up a um, like a tent city and they're going to stay there to sort of uh, protest, you know, with their voices and with their very presence there, the lack of economic justice in America. And this is something that has, you know, law enforcement folks and the FBI very um, unsettled as well. Um, and so Dr. King is under more intense scrutiny, perhaps, than he ever has been. And at the same time, he is getting criticism from some folks who are saying he's not radical enough that, you know, you have folks coming from a more militant side, you know, including sort of invaders types of folks, um, Black Panthers types of folks who are saying, you know, nonviolence doesn't work. And so, you know, they're saying, well, you know, this country is violent with us and we need to be able to defend ourselves. And so in the context of the civil rights movement and, and you know, Dr. King's work, you know, we're really kind of in the latter stages, you know, where various streams of work, various streams of ideas are kind of coming together into this pinpoint, you know, this, this place of, you know, uh, economic justice. Um, which would include, you know, the labor movements and which would include also, um, you know, anti-militarism, you know, as well as traditional just civil rights, equal rights and um, humanity, people being treated with dignity. I find that just really fascinating that, uh, you know, around this period and the trajectory of the civil rights movement. And it's not long before this that he gives the famous mountaintop speech and and, and, you know, people have looked at that in, in some ways as being prophetic. You know, he says, you know, longevity has its place. Uh, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. And if you watch that speech, there's almost this look in his eye that he he's, I don't know, he's at a particular place in his journey. So it's really, really fascinating to me that, you know, your your book because this is really capturing the essence of this period where where Dr. King is is cut down. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on there. So one is the way that he's unsettling the power establishment or the power structure because he's going after the Vietnam War, he's going after socioeconomic inequality. We've already had the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act under uh, LBJ. Uh, but then the other, the, I think the other part of it is the conspiracy theory. So let's just get them out of the way because I guess some people would include your father in part of this. Con- Why would an undercover police officer just be happen to be standing over Martin Luther King? So let's just get the conspiracy theories uh, out of the way and then we can move on to discuss COINTELPRO and other reasons why Dr. King and the civil rights movement was under the gaze of of the intelligence establishment. 
Yes. Um, so certainly, you know, there have been, you know, many conspiracies. Uh, one of the most, I guess, prominent ones would be um, the claims of a man named Lloyd Jowers, who ran a restaurant called Jim's Grill, which was on the ground floor of a rooming house that uh, James Earl Ray was convicted of shooting and killing Dr. King from um, a bathroom window in the same rooming house. Well, Lloyd Jowers made some claims, various claims, uh, some of which were convoluted and conflicting. But essentially what he says is that various members of law enforcement, including Memphis police officers, to include my father, went into Jim's Grill and planned, you know, various parts of the assassination of Dr. King. These uh, claims have been aired out in various uh, places, you know, in the media, and then um, also in a civil trial. The King family, um, Coretta Scott King, and um, some of, uh, well, Dr. King's sibling, or excuse me, children, um, brought a civil case in Memphis claiming um, wrongful death against uh, Lloyd Jowers and certain unnamed co-conspirators. And so um, this was a trial where, you know, these claims were once again um, aired out, but in a court of law before a jury. Dr. King's um, family sought $100 in nominal damages, and they won that case, and they got the $100 in nominal damages. Um, At the same time, there was a United States Department of Justice investigation, reinvestigation into the murder of Dr. King. And in part of that investigation, they looked at the claims of Lloyd Jowers and they looked at the civil trial. And DOJ found that um, Lloyd Jowers' claims were not valid and that essentially the uh, findings of that jury were not considered reliable. So um, this is just kind of a flavor of, you know, how these conspiracy theories have kind of unfolded and played out. Um, And I mean, there are various others. There are folks who, you know, have, you know, these different angles. I mean, James Earl Ray himself, who was convicted of the murder, uh, went on later to, you know, make claims that he was, uh, that, you know, he was innocent or, you know, that he, that there was someone else who, who was involved in this. Um, and, you know, a lot of these claims end up, you know, conflicting or contradicting each other in various ways. So it, it ends up kind of, to my mind, a web of, you know, various theories that are not substantiated. SpyCast listeners, I am briefly interrupting this episode to let you know that during the month of July, you can nominate SpyCast for a People's Choice Podcast Award. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and appreciate what we do every week, please consider sending in a nomination. SpyCast is registered under the History category, and all it takes is a couple of clicks on www.podcastawards.com. That's www. .podcastawards.com The link to nominate our show will also be in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much for your continued support of SpyCast and please enjoy the rest of the episode. We'll be right back after this. 
And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. And for our, our listeners, like the generally is 50% American and 50% overseas. So just um, briefly, can, can we just establish a few flags on the ground just for our overseas listeners in case they're not familiar with this story? So Martin Luther King, the leader of the civil rights movement, I'm sure most people around the world have heard of him. He's assassinated on April the 4th, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. And the, the person who kills him, James Earl Ray, can you just tell us just a little bit, like, how does he die? Why does James Earl Ray kill him? What do you see the, 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 the facts pointing towards as opposed to the conspiracy theories that we just spoke about? Right. Um, well, the facts as we know them are that James Earl Ray was a man who at least had some racist views. You know, some may argue uh, that perhaps he didn't express such an extreme amount of racism that he would have murdered someone. But in any event, he had some racist views. He um, escaped from uh, the penitentiary in the state of Missouri, went on the run, and um, at some point, apparently wound up stalking the movements of Dr. King and traveling from uh, ultimately Los Angeles back east toward, you know, the areas where, you know, Dr. King was going to be um, during his travels, uh, ended up picking up a firearm, a, um, I believe it was a .30-06 rifle, and ends up traveling to Memphis during the time when Dr. King's 
travels are likewise taking him to Memphis. He rents a room at uh, this rooming house that's right across the way from the balcony area of the Lorraine Motel, where, you know, ultimately he cites Dr. King as he emerges on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel on the evening of April 4th, 1968. And um, James Earl Ray is now he's in the bathroom of this rooming house, uh, you know, and he's kind of pointing this weapon out of the little window and he aims and fires and murders Dr. King. And so after that, he uh, reportedly takes the weapon, you know, drops it out, you know, in front of a building, goes on the run, goes on the lamb and is able to leave the United States and winds up. Um, I, I believe he had planned to to ultimately flee to Rhodesia in uh, in Africa, but is arrested in, if I'm not mistaken, London and is taken into custody back uh, in Memphis, where he is to, you know, face judicial proceedings. And he ends up pleading guilty to the murder and is convicted and um, ultimately dies in prison. Wow. And in your research for your book, you never found any connection to, you know, some government agency, whether it be domestic or overseas or you know that is it's it's he's similar to Lee Harvey Oswald. He's just an independent actor propelled by hatred and ideologies. That is, yeah. How do how do you did the facts go anywhere else, or did they kind of really stop at, at him? Yeah. Um, so I did not find any connection between him and any governmental agency. And believe me, I was looking. You know, I was trying to figure out. You know, like where does this come from? How does this happen? You know, and, and how is he able to maneuver this way, having, you know, broken out of prison and, you know, he's on the lam this entire time and is able to still leave the United States and almost get away. But I didn't find any connection like that as far as why he would have done it. Now, that to me is is a question that's not quite answered. And um, so back in the 1970s, in the late 70s, the um, United States House of Representatives convened a select committee on assassinations to investigate the assassination of JFK, but also MLK. And so they looked at all of these things to try to just unpack what happened and see, you know, try to get to the real story, the heart of, you know, what happened with the assassination, including did um, James Earl Ray, did he commit the murder? And if so, did he act alone? Was there a conspiracy? And in their findings, you know, what they found was, you know, there were a number of unanswered questions. It's a question, you know, whether, for example, this man was so ideologically driven that that would have motivated him to murder Dr. King. The select committee also found the likelihood that there was some kind of conspiracy, though they found that if there were a conspiracy, it would have involved James Earl Ray's brothers. He had a couple of brothers who, um, you know, perhaps were working with him, uh, working with James Earl Ray. Perhaps they thought they were going to get some kind of reward from white supremacists. You know, it was known that there were various racist groups that, you know, would have would love to see Dr. King be killed and would offer money for that. So perhaps 
they believed that they could collect some funds doing this. But again, this is all just conjecture. There's no real evidence to support much more than what we have, you know, on the record as far as James Earl Ray uh, pleading guilty and, um, you know, what the FBI was able to determine, which, by the way, I mean, the FBI certainly, you know, one must consider the source there because, you know, uh, you mentioned COINTELPRO. Well, they had a counterintelligence program, much of which was focused specifically on Dr. King and which was focused on his downfall. So to have these folks also in charge of solving the murder is problematic. And this is... Uh... This is maybe a good point to just explain COINTELPRO to our listeners. And, you know, just in the research I was doing for our conversation, Lita, um, I came across a quote that I had heard before, but I, I had forgot about it. And it's Jed Gerhoover saying that Martin Luther King is, quote, the most dangerous Negro, close quotes, in America. Um, so there's this, you know, the, 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 there's this kind of focus on the civil rights movement. There's this focus on Dr. Martin Luther King. Can you just tell the listeners just briefly what COINTELPRO is? Yes. So COINTELPRO um, was the FBI's counterintelligence program, which consisted of abusive practices, extra legal practices that were um, bent on uh, destroying activist movements destroying um, people like Dr. King, people like uh, black activists, black militant groups, student groups, such as the Students for a Democratic Society. And so what they would do was dirty tricks, essentially, you know, planting stories in media, um, trying to um, turn individuals against one another, trying to divide groups, spreading lies, spreading rumors, discrediting organizations in order to render them ineffective. And this was all the brainchild, you know, essentially of J. Edgar Hoover, who, um, as you mentioned, said that, you know, quote, we must mark him now, you know, mark Dr. King as the most dangerous Negro alive. And so they did all that they could to prevent um, Dr. King from effectively doing his work. Um, and But not only Dr. King, you know, as I said, you know, this, this went to all types of groups that were seeking social change and going against the status quo. This was seen as dangerous. These folks were seen essentially as enemies. And this is such a, an, a fascinating uh, and explosive year as well. So January, you have the Tet Offensive in Vietnam and, you know, Walter Cronkite comes out and says, you know, the, the, the war is essentially unwinnable at this point. Then you have Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King assassinated in April and then later in the year, you have uh, President Nixon voted in. Uh, so it's just this really tumultuous year. But the Martin Luther King assassinations really, you know, that's really at the heart of the whole story of that year, I think. Um, just tell us a little bit more about the, the social context of that year, like the effect that the, the, the assassination had and and where the country was at that point, and where Memphis and Tennessee were at that point. Right. Um, as you mentioned, it was a time of great turmoil, great upheaval, you know, and in addition of all the, to all these things, you had urban uprisings, you had civil unrest, where people, you know, in many cities, a lot of Black people, people of color, 
were taking it to the streets to protest uh, police brutality and other types of abuses that they were experiencing. Through 1967 into 1968, um, and, and, you know, with Vietnam and, you know, the various other things that happened. And then Dr. King is killed in April. And, you know, that, of course, kicked off another wave of civil uprisings in various cities. You know, there were cities that burned. And Memphis um, was not among those, which is rather surprising in one sense, but not really when you consider, you know, the magnitude of what happened in that place. I think people were just stunned to the point where all that a lot of folks could do was really just mourn. And a lot of folks felt something, I imagine, bordering on despair, you know, that if this man of peace, this man who, you know, he was trying to to save lives, you know, he was against war and killing. He was, of course, against um, violence, and yet he is violently cut down. If this man is murdered in this way, then what hope does anyone have, you know, to peacefully bring change in this world? You know, this is something that you grew up with, uh, Lita, growing up in in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, You grow up, you know about, you know, the legacy of Martin Luther King. Uh, But then can you tell our our audience about how you find out about the role that your father played in, in this? And yeah, just tell the listeners a little bit more about how you came across this story. Right. Well, so my parents divorced when I was three years old. So I didn't grow up, you know, in the same household with my father. My mom took the kids from Northern Virginia, which is where I was raised, um, back to her hometown of Memphis. And it was a rather acrimonious divorce. And so to my mind, sort of the unsettled feeling and, and the disturbance around, you know, my father's work during that time was kind of bound up in this and these negative feelings about the divorce. So all I really knew uh, was that my father was at the scene of this tragic event. I knew he was in this famous photo. My mother showed it to my uh, little brother and me and said, you know, this is your father. And he was a Memphis police officer. So that's all I knew for many years. Um, And it wasn't until I was a teenager and I was reading the newspaper, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, which, you know, I kind of grew up in a newspaper household. My mom was a reporter for this newspaper. My stepdad worked there. And so I would come home from school and read the newspaper. And I was paging through the newspaper and I saw an article, you know, about the assassination. And, oh, you know, look, it says here that there was a black police officer who was a mole in this militant group called the Invaders. And then I see my father's name. And that's how I found out that, you know, he wasn't just any Memphis police officer on the scene of the assassination. He was an undercover police officer. That's how I found out. No one ever mentioned this. And help our listeners understand the effect that this had on you, because, you know, you discuss this in the in the book, this, you grow up with one narrative and then you find out that the narrative is actually different and the effect that this had on, you know, just on your understanding of the civil rights movement and and everything else that went on. So just help our listeners understand that kaleidoscope of feelings that you felt when you found out. Yes, kaleidoscope is a very good word to describe it because, you know, I mean, growing up in Memphis, the assassination of Dr. King 
always loomed very large. And even though I wasn't born when it happened, it still nonetheless felt like part of my lived experience. I mean, you know, and, and the civil rights movement, of course, you know, Dr. King was, uh, you know, and is one of the great heroes of not only civil rights, but human rights, um, not just American history or black history, but world history. And so, you know, to have my father at the scene of the assassination was already something that was just, it, it weighed on me in a way. And yet I was able to kind of um, push that feeling down and compartmentalize it, you know, p- put that away with some of the other negative feelings that I had, for example, around my parents' divorce and only seeing him, you know, once or twice a year when he would come visit. And so, you know, I also, growing up in Memphis, had developed this um, early consciousness of the need for, for black liberation and, 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 you know, just really feeling strongly about fighting for the rights of marginalized people. And I, you know, as a teenager, I started reading about the black Panthers. I was really fascinated with them and their stance and, you know, kind of the self-defense aspect and, you know, the, the program that they had put together um, they did a lot of good, you know, where they were. They um, well, and, and actually, not only where they were, but th- their influence spread across the country with the free breakfast program for children and various other things. Head start to find out from the newspaper that my father actually had infiltrated a group that, to my mind, was very similar to the Black Panthers in some respects, and was reporting to the police department about them. I had a hard time with that. I really could not understand how a black person could infiltrate a group that was ostensibly fighting for black liberation and report back on them to the police. And, you know, I, I felt really like, you know, I wanted to get as far away from this story as possible. And so that went into that box of negative feelings that I had. And I just kind of said, you know, well, that's him. That's not me. I had nothing to do with this. And in fact, I don't need to be involved in it at all. And I just hope that no one ever asked me about this. And that's really how I operated for many years, you know, uh, up until I started, you know, um, having children, you know, by this time, you know, I, I'm in my mid thirties. I have a law career. I've just had my second child of, of three. And, you know, I start to think about questions of legacy and, you know, it's one thing for me to, you know, go through my life, just trying to distance myself from certain facts or not knowing certain things, but was it fair and was it right to pass that down to my children. You know, what could I tell them about their granddaddy, Mac? And I really didn't know because we had never, you know, my dad and I had never talked about what his experiences were. Why did he do the work that he did? And what exactly happened? Were the conspiracy theories true? You know, was there any element of truth to them? And so that is what led me to um, investigate the story and ultimately write the book. And did you find that writing the book, it was cathartic? Did it help to exercise some of those, uh, some of those feelings or, or how did the book interact with your, with your emotions and your experience? Yes. I mean, the book was ultimately cathartic. However, that catharsis took place over a period of 
seven or so years. <laughs> so it was also, I mean, excruciating is a word that I sometimes use to describe <laughs> certain parts of this process. Um, I mean, so the way that we began, my father and I was, you know, I just called him up and had a very awkward phone conversation with him, unlike any other that I'd ever had in my life, where I said, hey, dad, you know, how you doing? Yeah, fine. Um, so we never talked about the assassination of Dr. King. And so I was hoping you could tell me about that. And by the way, we've never even talked about your childhood at all. And so I would like to know about that as well. And so, you know, after some initial <laughs> silence of, you know, surprise, he said, well, why don't we do this? I will send you some notes and then you can read those and we'll go from there. And shortly after this conversation, I get this email and attached to it is a Word document with 17 pages of notes. And I mean, these notes start from, you know, Tibbs, Mississippi, 1944, you know, where he was born and takes me, you know, they, they take me through, you know, his whole you know childhood and upbringing and beyond. And initially I got those notes and, you know, immediately I'm plunged into Jim Crow, Mississippi, 1940s, poor family. Uh, Mac, my father, is one of 12 children. It starts off okay. And then, you know, he he launches into this anecdote about the first time that he encountered white supremacy, which was at a young age of, you know, three or four. And um, it's so overwhelming to me that I cannot continue past this anecdote. This is on page three. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I can't do this. You know, and, you know, briefly, the story is that my dad and his father, Walter, had just come from the cotton gin, you know, where they had, you know, they picked cotton and they took it to the cotton gin. And then they went to a um, convenient, not a convenience store, but a, a, you know, like a store, country store to get some things. And there are these white men who are sitting on the porch of the store. And so they go in, they get what they need, and then they come out. And one of the white men offers my father a black cherry soda that this man had been drinking out of. And so my father, remembering that he was always told never to drink after people, tells the man, no, I don't want it. And he notices right away his father becomes very agitated. And he can't, my father cannot understand why his father's so upset and why is he being made to take this drink when he's always been told not to do that. And it's just... You know, after I read that, I just said, yeah, I'm just imagining what else is in these notes? This is only page three. We haven't even gotten anywhere near the assassination, by the way. And so I just said, you know what? I'll just come back to this when I'm ready. And that moment when I was ready didn't come for another five years. mentions COINTELPRO a number of times in this episode. The FBI began COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program, in 1956 in order to disrupt the activities of the Communist Party of the United States. In the 1960s, it expanded to look at a number of other groups considered subversive. Most were part of what has been termed the New Left, while a few were from the far right. Examples include the anti-Vietnam War movement, civil rights and black power movements, the Nation of Islam, the American Indian Movement, women's liberation, the United Farm Workers, and the KKK. Its purpose was to disrupt, discredit, 
and divide these organizations through a variety of means, such as surveillance, infiltration, legal harassment, psychological warfare, and disinformation. The program came to an end in 1971 after activists broke into an FBI office in Pennsylvania and passed material related to it to news organizations. Shortly afterwards, the program was terminated and it would go on to be investigated by Congress in 1975. The longstanding director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, in office from 1935 until 1972, saw the hidden hand of communism in the Soviet Union behind the civil rights and black empowerment movements in particular, which led to Martin Luther King being one of the most heavily surveilled figures by the FBI during this period. As the FBI website states, COINTELPRO was later rightfully criticized by Congress and the American people for abridging First Amendment rights. As Jesse Jackson, who was with King when he was assassinated, said, when you have this feeling that the government really is watching you, taps your telephone, maybe in your text files, it has a chilling effect. It takes away your freedom. And often, for leaders, none of us are perfect. It neutralizes people. And, and I suppose, you know, for our listeners, one of the things that you would have asked him would have been how could somebody grow up in this, you know, shocking racist environment in Mississippi of this era? How could you, quote unquote, end up working for the man in, you know, uh, Memphis, Tennessee? So, yeah, can you just briefly uh, just tell us about that conversation and that kind of line of questioning? Right. I mean, that was one of my main questions. I mean, you personally experienced some of the worst, you know, that white supremacy has to offer. So how could you then turn around and, you know, infiltrate this group and, you know, for the Memphis Police Department? And what I learned, though, was that it's so much more complicated than that. It's so much bigger than that, that, you know, where my dad grew up in Mississippi, first of all, Law enforcement was not something that a black person could do, period. Um, And in fact, the sheriff in my dad's county where he grew up was known for torturing and murdering black people. So law was not something that was really um, at all, I guess, upheld in any anything approaching, you know, equity or anything approaching fairness. It was just oppression. That was, that was law and order for, for that place. And so, you know, realizing that uh, he would have no opportunities to really become who he could become in this environment, you know, my father ended up, you know, enlisting in the army, you know, did three years doing that, including overseas in Germany. And when he came back to the United States, he said, I'm not going back to Mississippi where I have no opportunities. You know, oh, and I should mention that when he was in the army, he ended up getting assigned to the military police. And this is actually essential because, you know, he didn't choose the military police. This was chosen for him. So he went to military police school and was a was an MP. And so this was really his only professional experience, so to speak. So he comes out of the army in 1967 and decides he's going to Memphis, which, you know, compared to 
the Mississippi Delta offers a lot of opportunity. And plus he has some relatives there. And so, you know, he goes to Memphis, stays with relatives, tries to get on his feet. And the first thing he does is try to find a job. Well, he can't find a job. No one will hire him. He's got a GED. He didn't finish high school for reasons that are, you know, in the book. I mean, he essentially was tricked into dropping out of high school, but he can't get hired for anything. And so finally, one of his cousins takes pity on him. Um, This cousin has um, a kind of management type position, so to speak, in these manual labor jobs, one of which is at a warehouse and another one is at a motorboat repair shop. And so um, my father ends up working under him for, you know, minimum wage at the time. What was that, like a dollar an hour or something like that? But, it you know, it gives him something to do and it gives him some, you know, pocket change. But, I mean, this is what his job prospects were coming out of the Army. Then it just so happens they're riding to work uh, one day, one of their two shifts that they work in a day. And um, they hear a police department recruiting ad on the radio, you know, and it's kind of like got these sirens playing in the background. Woo, woo, you know, be a Memphis police officer. And so his cousin, Eugene, turns to him and says, hey, Mac, hey, weren't you a military police officer? Maybe you ought to go down there and you know apply to be a Memphis police officer. And my dad is just incredulous. He's like, what? You know, they're not going to hire a Negro police officer. And Eugene says, well, you don't know that. You ought to at least go try. And so to placate Eugene, Mac, my dad says, "Okay, well, you know, since he believes in me, I'll go pick up the application. And so he drops off Eugene at the warehouse and goes down to Memphis Police Department headquarters thinking he's going to walk out of there with an application. Well, it's not nearly so simple. And long story short, he spends a full day in this process. This is the last day to apply for a spot on the force. And he has to jump through all these hoops including taking the civil service exam that very evening. Mind you, he's dressed for the warehouse. He's got on like work boots and, you know, these clothes for, for, you know, this manual labor job. And, you know, close to midnight, he gets out of, you know, this, this application process where he's taken the civil service exam. He's had to interview before a panel of the top brass of the Memphis police department. And he finds out he's been one of the folks, selected to proceed and go into the Memphis Police Department um, Academy, training academy. And so this is how he winds up a Memphis police officer, one of the few black officers. This was not something he ever dreamed of doing or set out to do, but it was something that he could do. And that actually meant everything. You know, Um, it was really important to understand, you know, what what was it like being a black person, you know, a black man at this time, you know, who essentially went through this pipeline from high school, not even graduating because of, you know, this bill of goods that he was sold directly through to the military, directly out of the military to these manual labor jobs that were low paid, working two shifts in a day. So getting up before the sun comes up and working, you know, till the sun goes down, doing that day after day with no end in sight. And then finally, you've got like this opportunity that is something that just comes out of, you know, left field and deciding, you know, you're going to go for it and actually seeming to get somewhere. And, you know, what was that like? And, you know, what what did you know and understand about law enforcement at that time 
versus, you know, the perspective that we have today. You know, I had to put myself in the mindset of somebody at that time. You know, this is, of course, pre- you know, George Floyd, of course, but at the same time, you know, there was plenty of police brutality to go around. There just weren't cell phones. And, you know, the consciousness um, socially just was not um, what it is today. And so, you know, the bar for law enforcement that my dad had was the sheriff that murdered a family friend in Mississippi. And so he's looking at the Memphis Police Department as something completely different. These folks have a training academy. They're professionals. And by the way, they've hired a black man, me, (laughs) to be a commissioned officer, which is a level of authority that would be unthinkable where I grew up, you know, even to this day. Like in 1967, 68, in uh, the Mississippi Delta, I'm guessing this opportunity would not have been (laughs) forthcoming. So Memphis was seen for him. And the Memphis Police Department was seen as a step closer to the real law and order, which is, you know, to his mind, the same laws being applied the same way, you know, fairly and equitably to all people every time and not one group of people being a special class and the other group of folks being oppressed. So my father really, in being 23 years old, you know, there's a level of naivete as well, but he really thought I can actually execute the law fairly. You know, I can enforce the law fairly. And what is wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with that? And if I'm infiltrating a group to find out if they're going to commit crimes, what's wrong with that? You know, that's what he's thinking, because if they're going to commit crimes, well, the police department ought to know that. They ought to also know who's trouble and who's not, you know, who's planning on starting something, who's not, so they can focus on the folks who are planning on starting something. And also, you know, if I just report back the truth of what I saw, then, you know, how is that problematic? So, I mean, these are all considerations that go into, you know, this this story and, and, and how things unfold. And just before we go on to discuss uh, the CIA, I mean, I'm just thinking it's, it's an incredible generational journey that your family has been on, isn't it? From your father's experience in the Mississippi Delta to obviously everything that he done with his life and and then you now. It's quite a, an intergenerational journey, isn't it? And then you also spoke about your kids. Yes, it certainly is. And I think it just speaks to, you know, this kind of larger arc of history, you know, particularly of of Black Americans, but of all marginalized people, where, you know, freedom is something that has to be fought for, but we stand on the shoulders of those who fought before us, and we continue to fight for the generations that come after us. You know, I work and I fight for my kids because, you know, we can see now in the place in history that we are today, you know, these liberties that we have are not guaranteed. Just because time marches forward does not mean that we're going to be progressing in terms of our society, you know, and the rights that we hold. My father never really saw progress being made any other way than just this sort of slow push. You know, it's not a sea change. It's not like, you know, microwave justice. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it's incremental change. And, um, and yet, 
I, I think it's got to be pretty amazing, you know, to, to him to see what his children were able to do and the choices that they had vis-a-vis what he had to come through to get there and the choices that he had at our ages. Mm-hmm. And can you go on to discuss um, your father's a CIA agent? Because that's an interesting part of the story that we haven't got to yet. So just to educate our listeners a little bit more about, about that. Yes. I mean, that's another kind of uncanny part of the story where people were like, you know, well, okay, so I'll grant you going up to the, you know, your father's presence at the Lorraine and even being an undercover officer on the balcony. But then he goes on to become a CIA officer. How does that happen? Because that just seems a bit weird, to be honest. Well, you know, it really is uncanny. And similar to his you know, entree onto the police force. This was not something that my father set out to do. This was not a career aspiration. I want to join the CIA. This was never even in his mind. In fact, he had aspired to become an FBI agent. I mean, because he thought, you know, that's the next natural step for a police officer. And in the Memphis Police Department, I mean, this was kind of seen as kind of the next step. You know, you've graduated from local law enforcement and now you're you're going to the FBI. That department had a close relationship with the Memphis field office of the FBI. And um, in his undercover work, my father worked with a couple of special agents. And so, you know, when he um, you know, worked at the police department for several years and saw that he really wasn't getting anywhere, he saw he was hitting a ceiling career-wise and that really the opportunities for black people were pretty limited there. He decided, well, it's time for me to move on. Why don't I go to the FBI? You know, they know me and I know them and, you know, I have experience. And so he applied and more or less got ghosted. I mean, they made up this, uh, you know, excuse why, you know, they, they had some problem with his application, which was, it was clearly just a pretext to reject him. I mean, looking back, knowing what we know now about J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, you know, and in fact, you know, we know specifically that they, you know, there was an atmosphere that was very much against recruiting, you know, black FBI agents, you know, with any responsibility. So yeah, there was no way, but he didn't know that he thought, okay, you know, plus the federal government was kind of seen as a check against you know, local law enforcement and some of these, you know, racist towns and cities, you know, the FBI was kind of seen and and the federal government generally was seen as kind of more of a friend to black people in some respects. But yeah, he got ghosted. And so uh, he, you know, he's just patrolman, you know, he ends up working vice and narcotics, doing drug busts. He's got a a partner, uh, Billy Jack, he calls him. So they're Dirty Mac and Billy Jack, you know, this duo. (laughs) And, you know, they're running informants and executing search warrants and arresting people and all this. Um, But, you know, my father's not satisfied with his career. He would love to to move upward. But, you know, he still hasn't heard anything from the FBI. Seems like he's not going to hear anything. And so, just so happens one day, you know, he's got this guy who's doing ride-alongs with police department officers. Uh, his name is Dr. Oswald, and he is a doctor. He's a medical doctor, but the Memphis Police Department has engaged him to conduct a study about 
the police officers in the department and, you know, their, the, the officers' lives and so forth. So Dr. Oswald does these ride-alongs. So he's riding along with uh, Dad and Billy Jack, and, you know, he knows a little bit about their lives from their conversations during the shift. And so he says, you know, hey, Mac, you know, how's that FBI thing coming? And my dad says, uh, nothing's happening. You know, I've heard nothing. And he says, well, you ought to just forget about the FBI and you ought to apply with the CIA. And he doesn't know anything about the CIA. He's just like, you know, what do they do? They do like paramilitary stuff like he doesn't know. Um, and it just didn't seem like something that somebody with a law enforcement background would, you know, naturally kind of go into. But after thinking about it for a while, he just decides, ah, what the heck, you know. So he sends this query letter. And um, what he does is, you know, because he decides, you know, they're going to want to confirm his identity. And so he puts his social security number or whatever in there. And, and then he says, oh, wait, you know, I've, I've got a photograph where, you know, I'm at the scene of, of the assassination of Dr. King from the Lorraine. And, you know, that's me. And so he, you know, he finds some, you know, magazine or whatever where he's got this photograph. He cuts it out and puts it in the letter, you know, and he writes, you know, to further establish, you know, my identity or whatever. I'm enclosing a, a photograph that you may have seen, you know, and I'm in it. And he sends off this letter and he just waits, you know. But unlike his application with the FBI, he gets a phone call from a recruiter out of Kansas City who says, yeah, you know, we got your letter and uh, I would like to meet you for breakfast. And so that's how the whole process begins of his recruitment. And this goes very differently, of course, than the FBI did. I mean, they, you know, they are keeping him engaged. He goes through interviews. He takes this um, professional aptitude test battery and they're staying in touch with him, sending him a little postcard like, you know, your application is still in, in progress. And so he ultimately ends up getting hired. Um, this is in 1974 when he finally starts. And so, I mean, what a strange trajectory. <laughs> what an unplanned trajectory. <laughs> but that is that is the story. <laughs> and can you tell our listeners what your father does uh, and for the CIA and where, where he goes and how long he's in? Yeah, so he ends up there from 1974 through 1999. I believe he retired in 99, and then he stays on contract for a period of time after that. And during that time, you know, he starts off in their office of security, you know, which is responsible for, you know, securing facilities, information, things like that. And uh, he rises through the ranks. Uh, he faces certainly, you know, various challenges along the way. But um, he ends up going uh, into the clandestine service, you know, director of operations in the 80s, does that for a while, works overseas, including uh, in Africa, then comes back to the United States, goes back to the Office of Security, works and works. Everything is going swimming, swimmingly until, you know, once again, he hits this ceiling, you know, in, in a rather dramatic way. I mean, it's kind of dramatic, but kind of banal at the same time, you know, same old thing. And then goes, you know, after, after he hits that ceiling, you know, he, he works for a little while longer, goes to the inspector general's office for a stint, comes back to security and retires with honor. 
Wow, what a story. And am I right in thinking that you'd done a couple of summer internships with the CIA? I certainly did. <laughs> can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about them? I sure can. I was just an intern. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's... Were you ever tempted? In, tempt, I, I was, I was, because, you know, looking back, this these were some of the best jobs I ever had. I mean, in my entire career. Now I can look back and look at like, I mean, and I had some great jobs. Don't get me wrong. I loved, you know, the law firms and things. I worked for a nonprofit and, you know, various things like that. And I, I do like being a writer. But in terms of just the, the work environment, the culture... I loved interning at the CIA. I mean, I just thought it was a really cool place to work. I love the people. What they do is very fascinating. It's super important, clearly. But I decided that it just didn't seem to be the path for me. And what does the future hold for you now, Leta? Do you have another book in mind or have you got another uh, idea around the hopper, so to speak? I do have another book in mind, um, and I'm really at the very beginning stages of sketching it out. This is a novel, um, okay. and it touches on similar themes to The Kneeling Man, actually. In fact, I would say, you know, it's it's a little bit like The Kneeling Man in a um, in the context of journalism. Like The Kneeling Man meets um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil a little bit. You know, it's going to be set in <laughs> Memphis and... So I'm very excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thanks ever so much for speaking to me. I've really enjoyed our chat and I've learned a lot. And yeah, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. All my time with the FBI really gave me an appreciation for just partnerships and, and understanding everyone has a, a role to play. And if you if you respect what they do and they respect what you, what you do, then you can really get some good work done. And I think sometimes people look down on others who don't do what they do. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com forward slash podcasts forward slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anakwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iman. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.